And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Brad Taylor back to the program today. Brad is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel who served in what is popularly known as Delta Force. After his service, he became a thriller author, creating the Pike Logan Thriller series. We'll be talking about his brand new one, The Devil's Ransom, where the covert ops department Logan is part of has been hacked for ransom to be complicated by Afghan assassins who are also chasing his target. Brad, The Devil's Ransom begins on August 15th, 2021 in Kabul, Afghanistan. Why is this date so particularly memorable? Uh, well, that's the actual date that the, uh, the that Kabul fell. That's the date that uh, the president fled the country and the whole thing collapsed. Things are getting ready to go down, and there's a man who's in the government structure, Ahmad Khan, and he doesn't quite have all the info. No, no. I, uh, you know, obviously I wasn't inside the presidential palace when Kabul fell, but I tried to generate what I, I knew what, you know, the, the president left with all his advisors and his wife, and they said they were coming back, and what they actually did was flee the country. And so what is Khan's role in the government there? He's a national security advisor, and so he's real. he thinks that they're coming back, and he has a, a friend he has that they grew up with who is the one that wants to be, needs to get extracted, shows up and says, I know more about the situation than you do. He's not coming back. We need to go. If we don't leave now, we're going to, the Taliban's rolling in. So how is the national security advisor less informed than his friend John? Well, it's because John's got, uh, he's worked with the uh, uh, intelligence agencies throughout the CIA and everybody else. He's got tapped into all the uh, uh, nodes that are around the country feeding him information. He's on the inside. And John was a pretty successful operator. Yes, for the Afghanistans. When you say John, just so everybody's listening, his name's J-H-N. He's uh, John Azimi. He's an Afghan, not a Westerner. Yeah, there's a couple of names in the books that, if you say them out loud, sound like other things, like John does. And there's a, a fellow named Bronco later. Yeah. So John not only wants to get out of Afghanistan because there'll be retribution for his success as a special forces operator in the country, his sister has asked him to do something special for her. Yeah, she, his sister has a daughter, and he, she knows what's going to happen when the Taliban comes. And so he's asked John, he knows John, she knows John's got uh, uh, contacts and says, hey, take my daughter with you, get her out of this place. And so how are they going to get out when they don't have any rights to aircraft at that point? Well, they've got uh, the National Security Advisor can call aircraft. And uh, what John's telling him is, look, those aircraft are going to leave. They're going to leave empty. You need to call one right now because I guarantee you those pilots aren't hanging around. They're flying out. And he says, you need to get one of those helicopters here and get us out to Tajikistan. And while John has his niece to bring with him, Khan has an idea of something to bring with him as well. Yeah, that actually is what sparked the uh, initial choice of mine to use Afghanistan. I wasn't going to touch Afghanistan because I've been in, I'm, been in Afghanistan and as a veteran, it's kind of raw for me. It's raw for a lot of people. And I was asked quite a few times, if you know, are you going to write about Afghanistan? I was like, no. But I still kept up on it because I had a bunch of friends over there who were conducting the evacuation. I was watching it, you know, quite intently. And I read a story about the Taliban when they took over Kabul, they lost the Bactrian treasure and they were going to lop somebody's head off unless they brought the treasure back. And I'd never heard of that treasure. And so I did some research. It's a real interesting story. Bactrian treasure was found by Soviet archaeologists in the late 70s. It was a tomb in the upper steps of Afghanistan. They still to this day don't know who was buried in the tomb, but whoever it was, was some type of royalty. And in the tomb was treasures from all over the Silk Road. So, you know, daggers from Serbia and emeralds from China and pieces from Greece. So whoever it was, was well-traveled. And it became kind of the cherished thing for Afghanistan. It was their version of King Tut. Then the Soviets invaded. And then when the Soviets left in uh, 1989, the treasure disappeared. It was gone. 
everybody just assumed the Soviets had taken it, melted the gold or whatever. They're the ones that took it on the way out the door. Well, then fast forward to uh, after 9-11, 2001, we toppled the Taliban. And in 2002, 2003-ish, some guy comes out of uh, uh, hiding. He's like the key master. And he says, hey, I got to show you guys something. He went underneath the main uh, vault of Kabul Bank and unlocked the vault. And there was the treasure. It had been hidden all those years. And they never told the Taliban it was there. So when it came out, it, it turned into, uh, it went around the world. The treasure itself went to China and to Paris and to San Francisco on a little world tour. And then went back to the presidential palace. And then when the Taliban took over, it disappeared again. I don't know where it is to the, right now that they found it or not, but I, I tell you where it is in the book. The National Security Advisor decides to use that as leverage. He's going to take that treasure with him as a bargaining chip to get to freedom. It's pretty interesting that this inciting action that these Soviet archaeologists make this possible because Pike and Jennifer, their cover is archaeology. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually what picked my interest on it. When I read that, I was like, you know, I can fit that in the story. It's exactly right. So how much time has passed between the conclusion of The End of Days and the beginning of The Devil's Ransom? I mean, I don't have the date set. Yeah, I'd have to go look at what, what date I, you know, what specific date was it End of Days? And I know this one starts August 15th. So I'm just, I guess, eight months. How's that? All right. That sounds great. So why are Pike and Jennifer and the rest of the team in Tajikistan? They're doing what's known as cover development trips. So they, I mean, yeah, they work for the task force. They have a cover organization. But anytime you have a cover organization, you've got to have some kind of reality to your existence. So otherwise, it's very easy to. I and mean, if you say you're a used car salesman and you go into, you know, East Germany as a used car salesman, they say, where's the address of your car lot? You don't have a car lot. Then that doesn't serve you very well. So they're constantly doing these trips that are actually helping out universities and things like that. So it pads their resume. So if anybody does a scrutiny on their company, it looks like a legitimate company. So what kind of ratio to building cover to actual operating has to go on? Well, that all depends on the level of risk you're going to assume. Uh, and I'm, it, this is kind of classified stuff, so I'm not going to really delve too much into it. Okay. Along with the regular team, Amina, their adopted daughter, is along with them too. And that is definitely a complicating factor. Yeah, it definitely is. That's, that's been a complicating factor since I wrote The Daughter of War. Initially, she was going to be just a, a minor character that would get Pike on the thread of the actual threat vector for the rest of the book. And I got to chapter four where she was going to exit stage left. I hadn't decided whether, you know, she was just going to run away, she gets killed, whatever. And I liked her too much. So I left her in there and she ended up taking over the book. The title of the book was Shadow Strike up until I was done. I give 110% to each individual book. I don't ever think to the future, which is probably a fault, about how this will impact the future of what I'm writing. It was one of my favorite books, and I really loved it, but now she exists. She's in Pike Logan's world. Now what do I do with her? And so I'm constantly trying to juggle that. And she's very willful. Yeah, because she's a Syrian refugee whose whole family's been slaughtered, and she lived on the streets of Europe uh, with just her wits to survive for a long time. So, yeah, she's certainly willful. So going back to not being able to reveal things about how operations work, is this your own personal sense of what should be held back, or do you actually still have to get things cleared even though you're not in active duty anymore? Every government organization has their own pre-publication review process. So the State Department has theirs, the CIA has theirs, Department of Justice has theirs, and the Department of Defense has theirs. And I'm in the Department of Defense. And the Department of Defense guidance is if I were to say anything real world about anything I had knowledge of, it has to get cleared. So if I wrote my own autobiography, that would have to get cleared. If I wrote even about special operations in Syria, that would have to get cleared, even though I've never served in Syria, but I certainly know a whole lot about special operations. It would have to get cleared. But fiction, as a rule, does not because, you know, 
suppose I wrote a, a book about police officers in New York. Does that have to be cleared? I've never been a cop. Why does that have to be cleared? Where do you draw the cut line? Suppose I drove, I wrote about special operations specifically, except it was in the year 3032 on the planet Tatooine. Does that have to be cleared? So generally, uh, that does not have to be cleared. But the questions you are asking me are real world questions. So I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> they get a call while they're in the field. This is an operation that is just to build cover. They're out there to dig in the dirt. And that's not exactly one of Pike's most favorite things to do in the world, is it? No, Jennifer loves it. She's got an anthropology degree. She she loves those trips, and Pike's just like, oh, man, living on the ground. Let's get this over with. But they get a call in, and they've been activated. They find out that John Azimi's made it to Tajikistan, and he needs to get extracted. The Taliban are actively hunting him. And so the mission changes from, you know, cover development to you're going live. Go get this guy out. The team is there. Let's meet everyone in the team. First up, we have Knuckles. Yeah, he's a, a Navy SEAL that uh, has been Pike's 2IC for years. They're best friends. And he actually has a personal relationship with the CIA spook they're going to meet up with in Tajikistan. Yeah, he did. They broke up, but he's. Uh, she was actually introduced in a novella. Knuckles and Decoy were in a novella, The Recruit. I ended up bringing her into the actual series in Ring of Fire. She's kind of been in several of the books. And what about Veep? Veep is the, uh, he came from No Fortune Son. He's the vice president, which hence his call sign is Veep. He's the vice president's son. Who's was Air Force Combat Controller Special Operations. He was kidnapped in No Fortune Son books ago as leverage against the presidency. Pike took a liking to him and asked him, you know, you want to come on over and go to selection and join our unit? And he did. And is it Brett? Yeah, Brett, uh, uh, he works for the C uh, CIA Special Activities Division, former for, uh, Force Recon Marine. And he came out in book three, uh, Enemy of Mine, and he's been there ever since. So in dealing with all these multiple personalities, how do you keep them from not attacking each other? It seems like after a while, they kind of get tired of each other's presence. No, I think that's more the uh, pressure of the mission set itself. They all have the skill sets and they all absolutely say, actually, they love each other. Uh, it's just a, sometimes the pressure of skill set. Everybody has fights. The pressure cooker of a, a live mission, there's arguments about how we're going to do this mission. They usually have great technical support from back stateside. A lot of comms, help, satellite imagery, stuff like that, building up impromptu identities and such. But things have gotten complicated back home because they've been hecked. Yeah, so the task force itself is just a myriad of different cover organizations that all look to somebody who doesn't know that they're just legitimate companies. And one of the legitimate companies, which is actually covered, Blaisdell Consulting, which is tied into all these other companies. They think they're hitting Blaisdell Consulting. What they're really hitting is the task force. And they hit them with ransomware and lock everything up. There's, they have no means to use any of the assets they have because all their computers are locked up. And so what is Creed, their IT guy, trying to do to get it solved? Well, he's got a buddy of his or somebody he knows who used to work for the uh, NSA, for the uh, Tailored Operations Organization. And he knows a lot about ransomware. He worked for Cyber Command. And he's now on his own. He's got his own shingle out there. And that's what he does for a living is if you get hit with uh, ransomware, I'll help you get your computers, get the encryption broken on your computers. And so he's trying to get the, the uh, Blazo, he's trying to get the task force back up and running. Hobbs, you know, he's got his own shingle out because he feels like he's been done dirty by the, the politicians over the years. You know, it doesn't matter who's in, in charge. They're always looking for a whipping boy. So sometimes he's called a Nazi deep state enemy. Other times he's called, uh, you know, the Gestapo. And then when a terrorist attack occurs, he's called incompetent because he couldn't figure out that it was going to occur. And he got fed up with all that. So he left government service. 
And he's, you know, got some personal characteristics that kind of make it easy to pick on him. He's got a problem with sweating too much, and that's never attractive yeah. in a person. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Why did you have to pile it up on him so much? Well, he's he's actually quite successful, and everybody realizes he's he's a genius. He's just fed up the way things are working. He thinks he's doing the greater good. Since you're dealing with the, the hackers in this world... Do you ever worry about that you might rise your profile in their eyes too much to then be a target? No, I don't think so. Because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people out there hunting those guys right now. We just had the Hive was the biggest uh, ransomware group in the United States. And just yesterday, the FBI announced they hacked the Hive itself. It's a pretty good problem set. The FBI infiltrated into the hackers' servers, got the codes, the decryption codes that those hackers had, and in the database, because only 20% of people who get hit by ransomware actually report it. 80% just pay the ransom because they're embarrassed. You know, if you were a bank and you got hit by ransomware, you're not, you don't want to be publicly known that, hey, everybody invest your money in my bank. And by the way, some Russian hackers got into our systems. That would be bad for business. So we hear about the ransomware attacks for uh, critical infrastructure. When a hospital gets hit, you'll hear about it. Colonial Pipeline got hit and raised gas prices. The largest meat packer on two continents, us in Australia, got hit raise beef prices. So when those kind of things happen, you hear about it, but they, it's happening all over the United States. And when they got the FBI got into the database with the help of the German intelligence, they got inside the Hive's database. And from that, they could see who is actively being attacked right now. And they could also get the decryption keys. And so they got all the decryption keys, went to all the companies, even the ones that didn't report to the FBI and said, we know you've been hacked. Here's the keys. And once they had that all done, they then uh, destroyed the servers for Hive and took them offline. So it was a pretty good uh, solution set. But what I always what was looking at in the book is the ransomware guys that are doing this, like the Hive or the ones in my book, they don't have any real threat. So the, the worst thing that's going to happen to them is they don't get the ransom. Nobody's coming to knock on their door. Nobody's going to extradite them. Nobody's going to arrest them. So there's not a real threat to those guys. And I thought, you know, what would be a better threat? If somebody went over there and thumped in the head, the next guy that's doing ransom will realize, guess what? You do have skin in the game. And if they do find out where you are, you may meet a, a lethal end. So that was kind of the threat I was looking at. And so not only have they irritated the United States government because of the Blaisdell hack, some uh, overlap comes in there because Ahmad Khan has the Bactrian treasure and he's called on the Russians to help him. That treasure has been missed. Yeah, so that uh, he calls a Russian oligarch, not necessarily the Russian government. This guy's kind of on the outs with Putin. He's living in Liechtenstein. He's not. He doesn't want to go back to Russia. He's a real rich dude, and he's got a uh, affinity for uh, artifacts. And so he says, "Yeah, I'll, I'll help you get out if you give me the, the Bactrian treasure." And so the Taliban back in Kabul noticed that the treasure is gone, and uh, they put out their crew, the Badr three thirteen, on them. Yeah. And that's a real organization. So if you see, if you watch when the evacuation of Afghanistan, there was footage of these guys and they looked like they were uh, Western commandos. They've got, you know, multi-cam helmets, Peltor headsets, M4s as opposed to AK-47s, except they had big, thick beards. And those guys are about a 313 guys. They're the ones that were doing most of the fighting in Afghanistan against the conducts that we had. So they, they are not your, you know, guy wearing a man dress goat herder with a beat up AK. And, you know, I guess mimicry is the greatest form of flattery because they ended up looking just like we did. Well, copy what works. Yeah. So they get tasked to go find this treasure and to get John Azimi. Because that, that's when the Taliban, and this is a real world story, when the Taliban said we're giving amnesty to everybody uh, that served in the uh, uh, ANA, the uh, Afghan National Army, we're not out for vengeance. That wasn't true. They had a list of people that they really wanted. 
the average grunt soldier, yeah, you get amnesty. Guys like John Azimi, you're getting killed. And they have a kill list. And so they've got two squads out there, one going for the gold and one going for John Azimi. All of this will come to a head at some point, won't it? Yeah, it all actually does because they get tied in because the, the Russian oligarch is actually in charge of or funding the uh, hacking crew that has hit Blaisdell Consulting. So nobody knows this. And, you know, Pike doesn't know this. But so the Russian oligarchs got the treasure. He's tied into hacking crew. The Taliban are trying to get John Azimi and get the treasure. And Pike's trying to get the hackers. So they're all going to run into each other. When Ahmad Khan goes to Liechtenstein to meet with Andre, he meets this weird young guy named Bronco. What's Bronco's story? Yeah, Bronco is a Serbian guy who happens to be a computer genius. And uh, he's head of the ransomware gang that the oligarch's funding. He's the one that's hit Blazell Consulting. And he has a, a strong desire to be liked and he wants people to hang out with. Yeah, he's, a, he's kind of a party guy. He's, you know, 20-something, and he's just, he likes partying around. And that, he doesn't see ransomware as any kind of threat. It's just a way for him to make money. And he lives in Croatia and loves to party. That's just basically, hey, there is no threat to him because if they don't get the ransom, fine, they won't get it. And so, I mean, he gives his email to Ahmad Khan saying, hey, if you're ever in Croatia, let's hook up. Yeah, because he, he recognizes that that guy just got out of Afghanistan. And he thinks because Ahmad's going to talk to the Russian oligarch that, that he's some kind of business person like Bronco is. He doesn't know that he just fled Afghanistan. He thinks he's doing something for uh, the oligarch. Now, when we last spoke, you said there is going to be someone like Jeff Bezos in the book. And I think if we give away too much on there, I definitely don't want to give away what he's up to in the book. But I could also see a little bit of uh, Elon Musk in the character later in the book as well. Yeah, any of those three, basically. It's, uh, I'll, I'll give it up. So there's some international, commercial international space travel in the book. And it's, you know, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, SpaceX, they're all doing it. You know, everybody's doing these tourist trips into space, and that's part of the book. But he's a very um, imperious and not patient person. No, not at all. He's convinced he's correct no matter what happens. Because just look at him. He's a billionaire. <laughs> Obviously, I've got all the money. I did it right. <laughs> yeah. How many of those guys have you met in your travels? <laughs> not many. I may have met some billionaires because I was in the crown room with them, but I certainly didn't talk to them. Talk about your research in Croatia. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. And I know you'd been cooped up because of the travel restrictions with COVID-19. How was it like getting back in the field and, and seeing all these great sites and beautiful seasides? It was great. If I can get boots on the ground, I, I want to get my feet down on the ground because it's other authors can do it. Maybe just looking at Google Earth or Street View doesn't do it for me. I got to know what the culture's like. I got to know how the metros run. How do you know, does everybody rush into the metro or they allow you to get in? You know, Japan's completely different from Germany as far as, you know, public transportation. Do they have, how's the Wi-Fi in the country? And I usually say that, you know, I've got a list of things I'm going to look for when I go overseas. I have a plan in place, but there's always, I say 50% that's looking for me and I don't even know it exists. And I, uh, we started out in Zagreb, rented a car, and drove south and hit every small town along the way. Most of them didn't make the book, but quite a few did. Uh, and there's things that uh, I don't have any idea that's out there. And when I see it, I immediately say, that's going in a book. A good example of that is my neighbor from Charleston is actually from Bosnia-Herzegovina. So she knows Croatia really well. And she says, you're leaving Hvar, you're getting on a ferry, and then you're going to drive down to Dubrovnik. You're going to go right by Molly Stone, small town. And they have the best restaurant in the world. It's got these great muscles. You guys got to stop and eat there. And so we did. We said, well, okay, we'll do that. And so as we get there, it turns out Molly Stone means Little Stone. And there's two villages. There's Stone and there's Molly Stone. 
and surrounding those villages is the largest, well, Croatia says it's the largest fortification outside the Great Wall of China. It's this giant wall that surrounds both of them from, you know, 13th century to protect them from martyring hordes. As soon as I saw that wall, I said, I can use that in a book. And so you pay a little fee and you can walk from one town to the other. And that's what we did. And what ended up in the book is basically exactly what I thought was going to end up in the book. And it seems like HBO and George R.R. R. Martin might owe you some money as much as you mentioned yeah. Game of Thrones in the story. That's not me mentioning Game of Thrones. I was amazed that uh, they did everything over there. So Cliff's Fortress is 11th century fortress built on top of a mountain. And uh, it's just gorgeous. You look at it and you just, I'm just awestruck, at least I was, saying how did, in the 11th century did they build that thing this high up in the mountains? And so you go up there to look at it and inside there, there's a bunch of dragons, and it turns out that was a set piece for Game of Thrones. Now it's a Game of Thrones tour stop. We went down to Split, and Split had the old town, Diocletian's Palace, all this old stuff. And underneath this, the uh, town square are cellars where they used to keep stuff stored to put on the boats, and it's got a lot of uh, historical value. Well, that's now Game of Thrones. That's where they kept the dragons in the show. I mean, everywhere we went, there was some Game of Thrones reference. <laughs> so in the... Uh... Acknowledgements for the book, your wife has the status of DCOE. What does that stand for? That's correct. She is the deputy commander of everything. <laughs> but sometimes, so I'd, I'd make her drive. So we were driving along and we went. Uh, one of the things I found that uh, is certainly not one of the tourist stops you'll ever see for Croatia. When Yugoslavia was around, they had a, uh, um, he built an underground military airfield. It's completely underneath the ground to protect it from missile strikes. And it's still there. It's abandoned, but it's still there. And I said, wow, I'm going to use that in a book. You know, somebody told me about it and I found it on a map and it turns out it's ringed by landmines. We couldn't get into it. Mm. So we had half a day to kill and she found this town of Rostoke, which is a, it's a small little village at the juncture of two rivers. And I wasn't going to use it in a book. It was just some place we were going to go uh, take a look at. And it ended up being the culmination point of the book because it was just perfect. I could put snipers out and things like that. But as we're driving down there, we can see it and we're trying to get to it. And the roads aren't, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out. There's this bridge crossing a river. People were walking, strolling along the bridge. And so we got on the bridge and started going, and they all slammed to the left and right, glaring at us. And my wife was driving. I said, I think this is a pedestrian bridge. I don't think we're supposed to be on here. <laughs> and being in the Balkans, being 30 years since all the, the fighting and tragedy that happened there, what's your sense of how these countries deal with each other? Well, I'll tell you right now, Bosnia is going, falling back apart. Uh, and it's kind of a serious issue. It's not making the news because of Ukraine. Uh, but Serbia is talking about uh, when it made the peace deal, it's autonomous regions were in there. Republic of Srpska is there. Zvornik is their main capital. Then you had the Bosniaks and then you had the Croatians. Uh, and the Bosniaks and Croatians get along pretty well. But the Serbians, they want to leave. And so in the past, they've had uh, everybody joined a national army. The Bosnian army came from all three of these provinces. And now the Serbians are saying, nope, we're going to have our own army. We're going to have our own police force. We're going to have we're, and basically what's happening is they're trying to split apart Bosnia-Herzegovina again. And it's bubbling up right now, but it doesn't make a lot of news. Hmm. Now, last year when we spoke, we were talking about the civil unrest that was in Kazakhstan and thought that it might distract Putin from Ukraine. And we were wrong on that one. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was wrong all the way around because I said, number one, I don't think he's going to go in. But number two, if he does, Ukraine doesn't stand a chance because mass and warfare has a, is a, 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 a characteristic all its own. And I'll be damned if Ukraine did it. <laughs> so I guess you were pretty surprised about the, the poor state of the, the Russian military. I'm not sure it was so much of the poor state of their military as it was just complete overconfidence. 
So they had uh, um, they only had supplies for three days because they thought they were going to be done in three days. And there was one key point that uh, culminating point that you call in the military would be a culminating point was a seizure of the airfield outside Kiev. If they had gotten that airfield and were labeled as a lily pad to flow in forces like they planned on, Kiev would have fallen. Somehow or another, those guys running around in track suits with bolt action rifles managed to keep the Spetsnaz commandos off the airfield. Uh, they couldn't seize the airfield. So that turned into this 40-mile convoy that everybody saw on TV that was getting blasted to death because they couldn't get up there through the mud. And from there, you know, three days into the fight, the Russians didn't have any uh, supplies. I mean, the old adage is amateurs talk tactics, uh, strategists talk logistics. Well, they didn't have the logistics. Uh, and so they just, you know, it started falling apart from there. And do you think the addition of tanks will get this thing wrapped up or is it just you think, going to drag on for a couple of years? I think it's going to drag. Well, I'm not sure if it's going to drag on because of the Ukraine side. I'm thinking the Russians are probably, they're rattling their sabers right now talking about Belarus. If you do anything, we're going to, Belarus is going to join the fight. Belarus is going to join the fight. And if Putin has shown us anything, he always projects what, he sets the stage for an excuse for what he's going to do. I mean, just for invading Ukraine. There's Nazis in Ukraine. There's Nazis in Ukraine. We're going to attack Ukraine. So he says, you know, anything that happens in Belarus is going to be a direct attack against Russia and Belarus don't join the fight. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if he attacks something of his own. You know, he uses his own men to attack something in Belarus as a pretext to Belarus join the fight. And I think when it's springtime hits, they're probably back there right now saying we're going to do invasion number two. And they're getting everything ready for invasion number two, which is why we're sending the tanks, because we, we kind of think the same thing. These guys are liable to just, instead of this drip, 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 they're liable to come over with everything they've got one more time to include Belarus and hit from three different sides, hit from the Crimean side, the Russian side, and the Belarus side, and a pincher move and see if they can just you know, knock out blow. I don't know if that's going to happen, but if that doesn't happen, it is going to be a long, drawn-out thing. The problem with the tanks, I think we gave them the M1 Abram tanks just because we wanted Germany to give the Leopard tanks. The Leopard tanks is better suited for what they've got. The M1 Abrams is a, is a, it's the best tank in the world, but it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly complex to operate, and it is incredibly uh, a fuel hog. It burns two gallons per mile, not the other way around. I didn't say you get two miles per gallon. It's two gallons per mile, whether that's idling or going. It's got an actual jet engine in the back of it, not a you know a, a piston-driven car engine. It's a jet engine that runs it. So those tanks can go throughout any of the terrain that's inside Ukraine, but it has to have fuel to keep going. And the fuel trucks themselves are not like tanks. They cannot go through everything that's there. So I'm not sure if we're going to have the capability to train those guys in combined arms warfare using the technology of the M1 Abrams to any great effect. If I were to guess, I would say they would probably end up in static positions and just become direct fire artillery pieces. Because, yeah, those supply lines would have to move so fast. Yeah. If anybody should learn anything about studying this war, it's that supplies count because it certainly kicked Russia's butt. And if they become dependent on the M1, they've become dependent on a supply chain that they have to protect. So back to the theme of the book with cyber attacks, are you surprised that Fancy Bear and the Russian Internet Research Agency haven't hit America harder during this period? I think they have. Like I said, 80 percent of people don't even report ransomware attacks. They're all over the place. It gives them great plausible deniability. A nation state can hire a ransomware gang and say, hit these people, take them out. And then when you, you do the forensics of the Fancy Bear ransomware program system, you could track it back to X place. But you can't track it back to ex-perpetrator. So it gives Russia, it gives North Korea, it gives Iran, 
all this plausible deniability that, it, that they didn't do it. It's just some criminal out there. Now, it almost doesn't seem fair. You've just got this book now out in the world, but I'm going to ask you, what's the next one about? Actually, I, I'm working on it right now. And believe it or not, I, I'm, I, it's going to have a Ukrainian piece to it and Putin as well. It's, it's giving me fits. I kind of wonder if I should have should have picked Ukraine to write about. <laughs> and so we can expect that January next year? Yes, sir. All right, Brad, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for stopping by on Book Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Brad Taylor is the author of The Devil's Ransom, which is the latest book in the Pike Logan Thriller series, and it's published by William Morrow. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.